0: Realm Presents Book Burners, Episode 11
1: All right, Cardinal Bonanno says, tell me what happened. Sal is seated in the woodlined hearing room of the Societus Librorum Occultorum. Menchu had shown her this room once, when she first arrived. She thought it looked like a courtroom then. It looks even more like a courtroom now. There is the cardinal seated at the head of the room behind what looks for all the world like a judge's bench. There is an expansive floor between him and the rest of the people in the room, the kind of space that lawyers should be stalking, though there are no lawyers here. And for the first time in Sal's life, that makes it worse. Someone needs to witness this, she thinks. The rest of them are seated behind a long wooden table, the monsignors of all three teams of the society, Fox for team one, Usher for team two, Anjuli, for Team 3. There is Archivist Asante and a few of each of the team's members. They're at a hearing, inquest is the official word, to determine cause of death. But Sal feels more like they're at a tribunal. Maybe they're at a kangaroo court. Let's begin with you, Team 3, Cardinal Verano says. Monsignor Anjuli turns to Sal with helpless eyes. She's never spoken to him before today. She's learned some things about him from Menchu, but so far their conversation right before the hearing is the only contact she's had with him. He's a kindly old man, not prone to oversight, and he's given Menchu a very long leash in the past few years. He's barely read any of the reports Menchu has filed with him. Sal looks at the cardinal. I've never done one of these before, she says. Should I stand? But Arno frowns. If you want to. Sal may or may not have detected a vague note of disappointment, like a mean grandfather would have. She's messed up, she thinks, either because she wasn't standing already, or because she admitted she didn't know the rules, or maybe both, and three other things she doesn't even know about yet. She puts it out of her mind and stays in her chair. Before she speaks, she looks up at the stained glass ceiling high above them. She wants more light, but it's a cloudy day and the light won't come. Cardinal Verano speaks slowly, making it plain that he's condescending to speak to her in English. You are aware, he says, that these types of proceedings are highly unusual. They are generally unnecessary. But given the many ways that this particular case almost escaped us, and the way it led to such destruction, injury, and loss of life among our own personnel, it is very important that we understand what went wrong and what it means for society operations in the future. Without Sal's permission, a few bad memories flit across her brain. Grace knocked through the air, through the wall of a building. The look on Menchu's face just before the dust cloud overtook him. Someone impaled on a long tooth. Someone else diving into the ground and the earth closing around him. A mother and son, crying. I understand, Sal says. The cardinal gives a very hoarse laugh, devoid of any mirth whatsoever. The sky was enormous. Team three had just gotten off the interstate, and the van was now speeding down a country road, just a straight shot across the flattest land Sal had ever seen. The tallest things for miles were the telephone poles and a jagged line running next to the road. In the van, Sal craned her neck to look out the window. She thought she would feel some sense of freedom, of exhilaration. The open road, the open sky, like in a bad country song. But she didn't feel any of that. She just felt exposed, vulnerable. Jesus, Liam said, there is nothing out here. He said that already, Grace said, four times. There's still nothing here, Liam said. The orb, Asante had told them, had gone off in a flash, like something had exploded inside it, before it clacked out the coordinates. It was unusual unusually intense. What does that mean? Menchu had asked. Asante shrugged. I don't know, she had responded. Tell me when you find out. Then it had been a 19-hour trip from Rome with layovers in London and Dallas. By the time they were on the final leg to Tulsa, even Liam had run out of things to talk about. They got into the van without saying more than three words to each other. And now here they were. The road was loud under the van's tires. The wind battered the windshield. There really is, Liam said. Don't, Grace said. Just don't. They pulled into the town of Tanner City 20 minutes later, or what was left of it. 22 hours before, Liam told them, at about one in the morning, a tornado had touched down in a farmer's field a mile away. It grew to be almost half a mile wide and cut a ragged slash through the town. There was little warning, and 33 people died. The next morning, some parts of town were filled with debris from other parts of town. One house had been speared by a tree that the twister had uprooted, stripped of its branches, and then thrown back down to earth. Other blocks weren't touched at all. And then there were the blocks that looked as if they'd never been built. There was nothing but the streets, sidewalks, driveways, and the concrete slabs that the houses had once stood on. That was all. The country road turned into Main Street, and they drove into the middle of town, where Main Street crossed a bigger road. The intersection was clean and tidy. It had been spared. On one corner, there was a musical instrument shop. On another, a gas station. They could see a little hardware store, a pharmacy, a restaurant with the specials on a sign taped to the window. Is it weird that there's no one here? Liam asked. I was thinking the same thing, said Grace. So, you're the American here. Liam said. Is this weird? I don't know, Sal said. I'm an East Coast girl. Grace parked the van and they got out. The stoplight at the intersection changed from green to yellow to red and back again. Still, not a single other car. Where is everyone? Menchu asked. Grace let out a little impatient sigh. She went to the door of the nearest shop, a liquor store, and tried it. It was locked and the place was dark inside. She rapped on the glass. Anyone home? She said. She waited three seconds, then moved to the pharmacy next to the liquor store and did the same thing. Then the jewelry store next to that, and the clothing store next to that. Each time, she rapped a little louder, raised her voice a little more. She was moving to the next one when a door opened across the street. Hey, a voice said. Sal turned. It was coming from the instrument shop. There was a man with a neat beard standing in the entrance. He'd opened the door just a little. Quiet down, he said. Quiet down now, or they'll find you. Oh, Grace said without quieting down. The tornado eaters, the man said. The what, Liam said. The, the man began, but he was interrupted. From somewhere, maybe a block over, maybe from the sky, there came a long, high, echoing wail that pitched up at the end. Get inside, the man said. I think you have the wrong idea about us, Grace said. She locked her fingers together and stretched out her arms. Another wail began from another direction. This one dove into a low, rumbling moan. It was answered by the first one. They both sounded like they were coming closer. Manchu walked into the middle of the street. Everyone to me, he said. They came in close to each other. Sal, standing next to Grace, could swear she could see the energy coiled in Grace's muscles dying to be set free. Wait, Menchu said. The first thing they saw was a foot. It was like a hoof, but with three skinny toes protruding from it. The leg it was attached to was spindly and hairy, bent at a strange angle, part horse, part spider. Then the whole creature lurched into the intersection. It had three legs that zigzagged up from the ground to a bulbous, fur-covered body about eight feet off the ground. Somehow stuck on the end of that body was its head, with a face almost like a baby's, but with a gigantic mouth that hung open, flapping as if it didn't have a jaw. It saw Team 3, and its eyes narrowed. It let out a low, guttural, mournful cry. There was another answering wail, and the second creature stepped under the stoplight. It looks almost like an ostrich, Sal thought. It didn't have wings. It had one leg and two long arms that reached to the ground, ending in enormous seven-fingered hands but it did have the long neck, the head with beady eyes, a squat beak. If it stood up all the way, Sal thought, it would hit its head on the stoplight. But it carried itself hunched over instead. It opened its beak and let out something between a bark and a chirp. Again? Again? For a moment, the creatures just stood there, sizing up the humans in the street. A string of drool fell from the first creature's mouth and smacked onto the pavement. If they move, you move, Menchu said to Grace. Got it, Grace said. The creature shifted. For a moment, it looked like they were going to sit down, but they didn't. They sprang forward, howling and hooting. Grace went after the ostrich one. She dodged a swipe from its left arm, grabbed onto its right, and vaulted herself up onto the thing's back. She reached forward, got a firm hold on its neck, and snapped it. The head bucked upward and wobbled, and the whole animal pitched forward and collapsed in the street. Grace leapt off and landed on her feet. The baby-faced creature was still galloping toward the rest of them. Sal, Menchu said. Already on it, Sal said. She pulled out her Glock and emptied it into the creature's face. It staggered back, twitched with every shot, and then seemed to slide over sideways. It panted six times, each exhalation more laborious than the last, and then stopped. The rest of the team looked at Sal. What? Sal said. We're back in America, yippee-ki-yay, right? yippee Kai, Grace said. Forget it, said Sal. How did you, Liam said. She's a cop, right, Manchu said. I uh, made some arrangements. Remember in the airport when I said I needed to go to the bathroom, Sal said. You didn't need to go, Liam said. She mimed a handoff, Liam shook his head. They passed each other a glance. Then they all looked back toward the music shop. The man at the door had seen the whole thing. He looked more terrified than ever. Relax, said Menchu. We're not here to hurt you. We've dealt with this sort of thing before. You don't have the first idea what you're dealing with, the man said. I don't know, Liam said, motioning toward the bodies in the street. I say we did all right. Those are just the little ones, the man said. Sat wanted to ask what he meant. She didn't have time. A groan rumbled through the earth beneath their feet. A shadow fell across the entire block, and there was another of them, the tornado eaters, rising up over the buildings down the block. A monumental body atop three thick legs. A huge, distended belly like a pregnancy gone too long. A triangular, frowning head. No arms. Sal's eye couldn't put it to scale. It was either too big or too close or both. Definitely both. A scream filled the enormous sky, filled the air around them. It felt like being electrocuted. Sal looked up. It was impossible to say how she hadn't seen it coming. It was as though she'd forgotten the sky existed, that the sun was out, that the only clouds were far away. A new creature was above them, far above them, like an aircraft in flight. She couldn't even tell what shape it was. The five legs descended from it to the ground somewhere, in town, outside of town. It was impossible to say. One of the legs moved, and its end, a foot shaped like the head of a hammer, reared up and crashed down into the intersection in front of them. From far overhead, the monster screamed again. And two monstrous voices answered, one from the triangular head, the other from somewhere else. They couldn't even place it. Good God, Menchu said. The monsters were even closer now, within striking distance. Grace, Menchu said, give Liam the keys. Grace shot Liam a glance and tossed the keys to him. He caught them almost without looking. Liam, Menchu said. Get far away from here and call team one. Grace eyed the giant at the end of the block. Don't, Grace, Menchu said. Liam was already behind the wheel of the van. He started the engine. The giant at the end of the block unleashed a roar and charged. Sal, Menchu said. Take care of the people here, okay? The next 30 seconds were hard for Sal to remember later. Somehow, a billowing wall of dust raced out in front of the giant as its feet cracked the pavement beneath them. Maybe it was taking off pieces of the building around it as it crashed down the block. Maybe it was something it could just do, like summoning the elements. She remembered Grace leaping forward toward that giant, arms out, hands clenched into fists. If she was gonna go out, she was going out fighting. Sal sprinted for the music store. The man was still there behind the glass door. Sal gave him the most pleading look she could muster and the man opened the door. She glanced toward the intersection where their van was careening toward the gigantic foot trying to get around it. The foot gave just a little twist as the van passed knocking it up onto two wheels. Sal didn't have time to see if it landed again if Liam got out. She dove through the open doorway and the man slammed it shut behind her. The last thing she saw before the street was choked in dust and roars was Father Menchu still standing in the middle of the street watching Grace, watching Liam as a father watches his children, horrified and proud. Then there was a rumble that turned to a roar, and everything in the street went dark. This way, the man said. He led her to an interior office with no outside windows, and they waited in the howling gloom while the walls shuddered around them. It seemed to go on forever. Then, at last, it was over. Sal ran to the glass door. Don't open it, said the man. Please don't. I won't, she said. The street was littered with bricks and dust, broken timbers and glass. The buildings on both sides of the block were wrecked as if another tornado had come. The traffic light that had hung over the intersection now lay on top of the rubble. The monsters were gone. No sign of grace or Manchu. The sky was clear again, as big as ever. I'm so sorry about your friends, the man said. Don't say that. Sal said. It was welling up inside her. She fought it back down. I'm Raymond, the man said. Ray. He extended his hand. Sal, she said. She took it, and they shook. What are you doing here? Ray said. I can't tell you, Sal said. I saw what you did, he said, before the big ones came. You're here to fight them? You could say that, Sal said. Are any more of you coming? Sal looked out through the glass door again. It was cracked. There was no trace of the van. Maybe Liam had made it. Maybe he had been swept up into the sky. I don't know, she said. How will they handle those things? That was when Sal found a way back. Investigate, her brain said. Do what you're good at. Do what Menchu put you on the team to do. Those things, she said. You call them tornado eaters? Yeah. Do you know where they came from, Ray? Yeah, he said, but it's better if the person who brought them here tells you himself. Someone brought them here on purpose? Yeah, the idea was to protect the town. Some protection, Sal said. Ray didn't say anything, but looked stung. She'd crossed a line. Sorry. It's okay, Ray said. Let me take you to the person you want to talk to.
0: We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the world wide web, VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any british tv show but they aren't always available in the us so with nordvpn i can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly nordvpn is also the fastest vpn in the world and you can get all that speed protection and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month to get the best discount off your nordvpn plan go to nordvpn.com bookburners our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee.
1: Sal looks at Cardinal Verano again. It occurs to her that, sitting there behind the bench, he reminds her of the first giant tornado-eater they saw, the one with the frowning triangular head. As far as she knows, Verano doesn't have any arms, either. It's impossible to tell under his robes. You have amazing recall he says. It doesn't sound like a compliment. I'm a cop, she says. What do you expect? The cardinal's eyebrows rise, and she can read on his brow the disdain he has for cops. Sal decides right then that she hates him. And that was the last you saw of Father Manchu, or Grace, in Oklahoma? Yes, she says. It hurts to say it. It's very lucky that you emerged without more than a scratch, he says. Yes, it is, she says. She knows he's implying something, that she ducked and ran, that she's not going to tell him everything. But she's not nibbling on that bait. If he's trying to catch her out, he's gonna have to try harder than that. Go on, he says. They waited until it got dark. Ray led Sal to the back of the store, to the door to the parking lot. Across the lot, he said. You'll see a little brick house. It's maybe 70 yards away. Ex-football player, Sal said. Ray smiled. Yeah, but we're not running those yards. They'll hear us if we do, and we don't stand a chance at night. So what do we do? Walk very slowly, without a word, no matter what. Got me? Sal nodded. Okay, Ray said let's go. He opened the door. The lot behind the store was empty and ended at the next street. Across the street was a brick house, just like Ray had said. The stars were out all over the wide, clear sky, the moon three-quarters full. Ray started across the lot in a slow, quiet walk. Sal followed. A breeze kicked up, small but insistent. Sal watched it move through the trees near the brick house. Then she realized it wasn't moving through them. It seemed more to be pushing them, as though a giant hand were pressing against the branches. Ray looked back at her. She could see that he was nervous. Sal looked back up at the moon, and it was wavering, as if through smoke or water. Something was passing in between them, up in the sky, and it was smearing all the light from the moon and stars. Though near the horizon, the stars were clear again, all around them. It was then that Sal understood that a monster was walking over them, something even bigger than the monsters they'd seen during the day. And some part of it, a hand, a foot, a finger, was reaching down, feeling its way close to the ground. The big trees on the other side of the street near the brick house all bowed over at once, groaning as if they were caught in a hurricane. We have to stop, Sal thought. Her step must have changed because Ray looked back at her without breaking his stride and shook his head. She kept moving. The trees snapped back, popping, and shook it off, but the moon was still wavering. How can something so gigantic be so close to us without us seeing it? Sal thought. How have these things not shown up on radar? How have they not been spotted by satellite? Forget Team 1. Why isn't the National Guard here right now? Why haven't they declared a national emergency? Where are the helicopters and tanks? Where are the fighter planes? For a moment, it occurred to her that maybe a national emergency had been declared. Maybe the area around Tanner City had been cordoned off for miles and the world was watching. Everyone knew what was happening except the people it was happening to. But then she would have at least seen a helicopter. No, the truth was that somehow everything in Tanner City seemed normal to the outside world. Nobody had seen anything unusual. It was impossible, but it was true. Which, Sal realized, was her newest and most miserable definition of magic. Because it meant that the few of them left in this town were on their own. Liam, she thought, Grace, Manchu, where are you? They reached the steps to the house. The front door opened for them. They hadn't needed to knock on the door. Someone in the house had seen them coming. Someone in there was always watching. The people inside the brick house had put blankets up over the windows and kept most of the lights out. Word had apparently gotten around the house that Ray had brought in a stranger and everyone came downstairs. They had a lot of questions for Sal, but stopped asking when they realized she didn't have many answers. She counted 19 of them, three families, a married couple, and a handful of others. Ray was one of the others, and one of the few who risked going outside at all. They had maybe a week's worth of food and water in the house. There were bags of groceries everywhere and packages of non-perishables stacked behind the couch. It looked like a lot of food, but Sal knew 19 people ate a lot. They were washing their clothes by hand and hanging them up to dry all over the place. There was a clothesline strung across the living room, a short row of drying racks in the dining room, a damp blouse hanging from a doorknob, even though the house had a washing machine and dryer. They were afraid the noise or the exhaust from the dryer would bring the tornado eaters. They didn't really know why Ray and the others who were willing to go out weren't snatched up right away, given the havoc the monsters had wrought when they first came to town. But Ray and the others had gone out and come back, slowly, quietly, Many times now, and we're still all right. Ray thought maybe the tornado eaters just had bad eyesight. Great hearing, incredible sense of touch, but half blind all the same. They don't need to see, he said, for what they were made to do. And who made them, Sal said. Ray pointed at a kid about 15 years old. His great-grandpa did, he said. My grandpa, said his mother. She looked to be in her mid-40s. I'm Sharon, this is my son, Jacob. It's good to meet you both, Sal said. She was remembering her manners, realizing, too, just how much being on team three had made her forget them. This is Sal, Ray said. I watched her kill one of the tornado eaters herself with a pistol. So the rest of the world knows now, Sharon asked, and they're coming to help us? I'm not sure, Sal said, but if you tell me what you know about these things, maybe I can do something. Sharon took a deep breath. How much trouble are we in, she said. You're not in any trouble with me, Sal said. Sharon nodded. All right, she said. My grandpa was a magician, a real magician, do you understand? Yes, Sal said. Sharon looked at Ray, he nodded. She still hesitated. A look came over her face that Sal had seen dozens of times before on people about to confess a secret they'd been carrying a long time, now that it didn't matter anymore. The secret was out anyway, but it still hurt to be letting go of it. All right, she said. He came out here when he was a little boy, just before World War I. There wasn't much of anything around here then. Oklahoma had only been a state for a couple years. They hadn't discovered the zinc in the ground around Tanner City yet. There were already some big farms, but my grandpa told me he still remembered parts of it were just grassland an ocean of grass, like it must have looked before any humans ever laid eyes on it, he used to say. But they did have tornadoes. Sharon paused for a second. You're from where again? She asked. New York, Sal said. Before that, South Carolina. Ever seen a tornado? No. Until last week, me neither. Most of us, even here or up in Kansas, go our whole lives without seeing a single one. But you hear about them. When my grandpa was a boy, he said, his parents had a friend who worked for the Indian Mission Schools, and my grandpa had the misfortune of hearing a family acquaintance tell the story of what had happened in Birriton in 1917. Which was, Sal said, a tornado hit a Mission schoolhouse full of kids, something like 20 of them and their teacher, and only a couple of them survived. A family acquaintance got into some details, I guess, and after that, my grandpa could hardly sleep. Evening after evening, as the sun went down, he'd look toward the horizon for tornadoes coming. After it was dark, he'd lie in bed listening for them until he fell asleep, and then he had nightmares. This went on for a couple weeks, he said, at which point he finally decided to do something about it. And he did. He made the tornado eaters. He made them? Sharon nodded. When he was a kid, and named them too. Why else would the name be so ridiculous? Sal smiled. How did he make them? I asked him the same question once, Sharon said. You know what he told me? Out of thin air, same stuff the tornadoes are made of. Then he patted me on the head. That doesn't make any sense, Sal said. You're telling me, Sharon said. I've been trying to make things happen out of thin air for years, and it hasn't worked for me yet. I've just had to get them the old-fashioned way. Did he ever do any other magic? Sal asked. People said he did it all the time, but they never caught him at it. So either they were making things up or he was just really good at it, Sharon said. The only magic anyone saw for sure were the tornado eaters. When, Sal asked. 1921, Sharon said. Grandpa said he'd had them for a couple years by then. A couple of years of good sleep, I hope. But he still kept a lookout for the day he might need them. And then that day came. A storm came rolling up on Tanner City one June evening just after supper. Sky turned green, wind picked up. A bunch of people went out in the streets. They knew the warning sign, so they all saw it. Little by little, just outside town, the clouds were spinning into a funnel, and they all watched as it let down a finger to touch the ground. It got wider and wider and headed for town, which was when Grandpa let the tornado eaters out. Sal thought of Manchu, his village in Guatemala. There's no way this ends well she thought. What happened? No one who saw it really ever knew how to describe what they saw. But Grandpa said they did just what he asked them to do. They jumped out of the box he'd put them in, grew up into the sky, raced out to the field, and, well, ate it. Then back they went into the box. You'll never even find a record that the tornado happened because, well, it didn't. You said they went back in a box? Yes. Where is it? Sal asked. Here, Jacob said. Sal hadn't even noticed he was holding anything. It was just a little green wooden box and fit in the palm of his hand. This is it? Jacob nodded. Speak when you're spoken to, Jacob, Sharon said. Yes, he said. So who let them out this time, Sal asked. I did, Jacob said. He didn't know, Sharon started to say. I knew, Mom, Jacob said. I knew. He looked straight at Sal. He's going to speak when he's spoken to, Sal thought. He's going to do better than that. His mom's going to be so proud and so scared all at once. Everyone around this town knows the tornado eater story, Jacob said. But they all thought it was just a folktale. I mean, how could it be true, right? And my family never let on that we still had the box great-grandpa had made for them. Nobody ever tried to use it. Great-grandpa was a magician, and nobody after him was, until me. Because I have great-grandpa's gift, Jacob said. Sharon moved closer to her son as if to protect him. He inched away. Mom, she said we're not in any trouble. I know, Sharon said. Jacob turned back to look at Sal. I almost never used my gift, and then only in the smallest ways. Only when I knew that I could make a difference by moving something an inch to the left, and now more than that, never more than that. Which is why the society didn't find out about you years ago, Sal thought. Jacob smiled. But I saved a friend from being hit by a car that way once. Sometimes an inch is all it takes. Sal smiled back. You're a good kid, Jacob. But then after the tornado came, I realized I made a mistake. I'd gotten so good at doing small things, not letting anyone know that I'd forgotten to do what great-grandpa did. I forgot to do big things when I needed to. And I decided not to let it happen again. I knew what to do when I opened the box. I knew how to get the tornado eaters out of it and keep them waiting for my orders, just like great-grandpa must have. You were worried about another tornado coming? Sal asked. Jacob nodded. Isn't it a little unusual for tornadoes to hit the same place twice? Sharon shook her head. We certainly wish that were true, she said. Okay, Sal said. So what happened? I gave them the wrong orders, Jacob said. I wasn't as careful as I should have been. It's like Mom said, the tornado eaters do just what you ask them to. And I asked them to do the wrong thing. Protect this place from all threats, I told them. I imagine them just up there in the sky or at the edge of town, standing guard and ready. But I think I should have said town instead of place, because the tornado eaters have been in that box a long time, and it's been over 100 years since they've seen the place. And I hadn't looked at it like this, but in the last hundred years, we haven't been very good to this place. So the threat to the place is you, Sal said. Us. I think so, Jacob said. And there's no way you can just order them back in the box? I live here, said Jacob. We all do, we're part of the threat. But someone from outside of town might not be, Sal said. Someone who knew what they were doing with magic. As long as they don't come in here shouting and fighting and guns blazing, she thought, like we did. Jacob nodded again. Yeah, I suppose that's right. There's an opening here, Sal thought, a way out of this. There was someone in the society who knew how to fix this. Sal was sure of it. All she needed was a way to communicate with them, with Asante, and the society could send someone in who could put the tornado eaters back in their box. She just had to get out of town, away from the magic, and use her phone. Jacob, she said, one more question. How many tornado eaters did you let out? Five, he said. And the biggest one is in the sky? No, he said. The biggest one is underground. All right, she said. I'll take my chances. You're going? Ray said. Yeah, Sal said. Frankly, I don't understand why you haven't tried yet yourselves. Ray just looked at her. We're home already, he said. We don't want to leave. The walk would have been relaxing, romantic even, if Sal hadn't been so scared. Tanner City was a pretty little town. The moon was setting and the sky was flooding with stars. The brick and wood houses in the middle eventually gave way to newer places with vinyl siding and wider lawns. There were bites in the yards, a basketball hoop hung over a garage door. On a mailbox close to the street, someone had hung a sign advertising a tailoring and embroidery business. It was all so recognizable to Sal. She didn't have a general theory about people. She'd seen a little too much with that. But if someone had forced her to give one, it would have been that most people don't ask that much from their lives. They want a roof over their heads, a job that isn't too terrible, a couple days off to relax now and again. If they have kids, they want to do okay by them. That's about it. The world she lived in as a cop, where people did crazy and horrible things to each other and themselves, was abnormal. The world of politics she saw in the news, where people actually wanted to run states and countries, seemed to her to be full of ambitious sociopaths. This, Tanner City, was full of people Sal thought of as like most people. They had crummy but tolerable jobs, friends and families, and they didn't ask much more than that. They didn't ask for tornadoes and monsters. And right about then, it didn't seem all that fair to Sal that they'd gotten them. Though, of course, fairness had nothing to do with it. She felt a push in the air and looked up. The stars were wavering, as if through smoke or old glass. There was something right above her. How far up, she couldn't tell, but it was right there. She froze for what felt like hours until the stars were clear again. At last, she was on the outside of town and she kept walking for another mile. She went by a billboard that offered farm refinancing on one side and eternal salvation if you accepted Jesus on the other. She looked back. There was Tanner City, a little cluster of lights on the plane, clinging to both sides of the road into town. No sign at all of the creatures in the sky. Completely normal. She took out her phone and turned it on. It was working. She called us, hunty.
0: You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. BookBurners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Mur Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by X.E. Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose-Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring Jody Redditch-Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.